on the blackboard okay and it might seem we have too many slides right but don't worry about it because i provided i try to give you maximum information but it's not necessary that you have to memorize everything okay it's like you are taking the a broader overall view of the field but at this stage knowing that you are studying cell and molecular biology Okay. what you are supposed to know is the fundamentals of the topic okay and what i'm trying to do today is try to introduce you with this particular area in cell biology or in physiology and why it is important okay and how it is useful in the health and disease okay those are the main goals okay and as you probably know you have covered the entire field of cell biology cell and molecular biology by now so you are well aware with cell structure cell function cell motility and cytoskeleton structure and all of those things so here in this particular topic okay, everything is going to play some role at some point so i might want you to give your feedback okay regarding some of those issues okay so <clears throat> the first of all the word apoptosis what does it mean program cell death uh, in 1972 this is this is a small story which is very important that one of the pathologist who was observing some of the tissues in his laboratory and he found some unusual characteristics of some of the cells in the whole tissue is like it's a uniform layer of the cells and when he observed those cells which has got different morphological features and he got interested into that and from there he pursued it further and he discovered a phenomena called program cell death or apoptosis the literal meaning of the word apoptosis is falling off like in the fall the leaves fall of the tree it's a spontaneous natural process okay when you shake off the tree okay or you take a stick and beat the tree and the leaves falls that's not a natural fall 
but in a, when season comes a particular time or phase in the light when leaves they fall off by themselves and that particular term in the greek was term apoptosis and that's why this particular field also called as program cell death but in general it is referred to as apoptosis now <clears throat> why it is important to understand or study apoptosis death okay everyone knows about death okay what is death right and and then when we go into the philosophical question okay what do we mean by death is the end of the process or is the beginning of the process hmm? so if i say that without end there is no beginning how would we explain that <clears throat> that's the important in this topic also that say for example in our our uh, body every day 10 billions of the cells die every day and if those cells are not replaced by the new cells what will happen degenerative disorders right so there is a mechanism in our body that continuously some cells are continuously renewed and replaced now say for example in a town or city so much of the garbage is generated every day and it is not disposed properly what will happen it will stink the whole town right so similarly <coughs> if the cells are not removed dead cells are not removed in a precise and ordered way that will create inflammation and all other disorders in physiological condition and therefore a cell or a body or a tissue needs a mechanism by which those cells are removed in a way by which it does not cause any inflammatory reaction or an unwanted reactions and that's why this is called as program cell death now <clears throat> these are the questions like can cell be programmed to die we can program anything with the computer right so now what we are trying to do is we are trying to see whether we can program a cell to die at particular time and point in the life and is this process required and as i said that so many number of cells die every day okay and uh, replaced by the new cells that means this process probably is very important and it plays important role and what are the molecular and cellular mechanisms involved in apoptosis now why do we want to know what are the molecular mechanisms involved for anything right so it's like a car if you don't know the parts of the car what went wrong we cannot fix it so in order to fix okay we have to understand what is the basic mechanism by which it works and if we know the mechanism by which it works if something goes wrong we can find out so diagnose the problem and then we can solve the problem so that's the sole purpose and this is the uh, number 3 we are going to talk about in the lecture but number 2 are the like uh, theoretical questions okay now when i say that without death life cannot exist how do we explain that say for example if we take an example of uh, <coughs> embryonic development or neuronal development every the embryo starts from two cells right and it grows okay and 
if it grows in the same fashion and if you remember the embryogenesis the cells divide vertical and longitudinal and embryo grows bigger and bigger so it should not form any shape it should form a football right but over the time during the process you see a sculpting process where this it takes the shape of particular form whatever that species may be and in doing so hundreds and billions of the cells are eliminated from particular places and then new cells are formed and typical example is our hand and toes okay and i think i'll put the video one of the video on uh, website where you can see how exactly it is it happens in the body where this five fingers and toes are formed the cell initially it is all joined together as a lump of the mass and as if a sculpture sculptor is taking a hammer and chisel and scraping out carving out the five fingers and the body parts the same way the cells are uh, dying in the process and that leads to a shape of particular organism so that's why if there is no death i would say this we don't exist we in the sense the forms okay we see the forms so in order to have a particular morphological forms the cell death is essential the same way if there is in during the neuronal development okay millions of the neurons they are formed every single minute and same number of neurons die also so if that process is not balanced then we will have we might have probably head the size of earth and if the cells don't die then probably we'll have the body of elephant <laughs> so that's why it's very important that but the, the most important thing is how it is regulated it should be regulated because as you know in cancer okay what happens in the cancer cancer cells they multiply like crazy okay because they have lost the control of the growth okay and they don't die so those are, those are the things which happens in the cancer they don't die and they multiply in a unlimited fashion therefore the balance is disturbed and therefore cells die now <clears throat> like a typical example is like uh, uh, death of person by natural death at the age of 1995 110 okay someone dies like it's a falling of the leaves and if you are driving a car and you hit by someone and people die so the death can be by accident or death can be by a natural death so here like uh, cell death when we compare organism okay and cell so when i'm talking about cell okay at the same time this thing happens at the level of cell and cell for uh, the collection of cell is tissue and collection of tissue is organ and collection of organ is body so that's how it goes you can translate that whatever happens at the cellular level can be translated at the organism level okay. so now here <laughs> mechanical damage typical example is like accident so cells also may suffer uh, may have mechanical damage exposure to toxic chemicals which i don't have to tell you a lot about it so it can be exposed to chemical agents or cells can be exposed to chemical agents and chemical agents can cause injury to the cellular components or the dna machinery which is a genetic machine uh, mechanism and then cell death by suicide and for suicide there are external signals and internal signals now when cell 
receives this kind of uh, those signals from outside or inside then they activate certain mechanisms which takes control of the situation and, and makes the decision whether they can combat the situation, mitigate the situation or the decision is made that the, the insult or insult is so powerful then the decision is made that the only remedy is to induce or activate death pathway and this and we'll see how those decisions are being made by <coughs> and here are some of the examples which I was telling you about <coughs> and this is the resorption of the tadpole tail that's a classical way of studying apoptosis that when you see the embryogenesis and we all believe that every embryo had a tail right and it gets resorbed by the process of cell death and then formation of fingers and toes and there are various organs in our body where continuous renewal of the layers of the cell is taking place and one of the example is small intestine and large intestine where the uh, epithelial layer is renewed every 17 to 21 days depending on whether it's a small intestine or large intestine okay? And so, for example, in the lung epithelium, the cells are continuously renewed and in uterus lining, the epithelial layer is continuously in the process of renewal where old cells are removed and new cells are continuously formed. Okay? So those are the processes and as I said, the neuronal connections are continuously uh, taking place all the time and those are the tissues or organ where apoptosis play very important role. If there is an imbalance in the process or in the mechanism, then there may be hyperplasia or hypoplasia and those, uh, those conditions will lead to the uh, disease condition depending on the organ. And apoptosis is necessary to <coughs> destroy or take care of the dead cells. So as I told you, the cells can die due to various reasons, due to the chemical exposure, accidental death, and so many other uh, possibilities. Now, those cells, if they stay in the tissue, then they will create a abnormal condition and inflammation. So, those cells must be removed in a specific manner without causing altered reactions. Now, there are various examples of the uh, imbalance in the cell death process and here you have the immune system maturation, morphogenesis, neural, neural development and ex uh, excess apoptosis leads to neurodegenerative diseases and deficiency in the apoptosis can cause cancer and autoimmunity. These are uh, classical uh, examples and here is a list but this is just a limited list. The list is growing every single day <clears throat> and these are the probably well-known examples so it's easy to remember okay? <clears throat> now in myocardial infraction you can see here <clears throat> ischemia and reperfusion of the myocardial tissue will lead to the massive apoptosis and here thinning of ventricular tissue also causes the contractile dysfunction because of the cell death and <coughs> here 
the reason of showing this slide is you have a massive apoptosis going on here. Now in therapeutic approaches, if you inhibit the apoptosis, then you can prevent this kind of cardiovascular conditions by preventing apoptosis. And in order to prevent apoptosis, we have to understand how it occurs in particular tissue or in particular cell lineage. Now, as I told you that, uh, what makes a cell decide to commit suicide? This is important question, right? So in normal physiological conditions, cells don't die. So, and there are abnormal conditions where you have a deficiency or depletion of growth factors, for example, for the neurons and interleukins, IL-2, and some, uh, that's the, some of the physiological conditions which may lead to the situation where cells do not have sufficient growth factors required for continued uh, proliferating. Now, and there may be some conditions where death-inducing factors are also activated or secreted in the tissue and those are the like <coughs> we hear a lot of about anti antioxidant this day that eat this and you will have antioxidants and so <coughs> as cell metabolism occurs and as you know very well that glucose is converted into energy right and in the whole process of <coughs> conversion of glucose into energy it undergoes various oxidation and reduction reactions and all of those reactions generate some of the uh, reactive oxygen species. And there is a mechanism, built-in mechanism to scavenge those reactive oxygen species. But sometimes, because of the anomaly in the metabolism, the amount of reactive oxygen uh, production increases beyond the capacity of cells to scavenge that, then that will lead to the damage into the cell, which may directly cause damage to the proteins, or to the DNA and those conditions are signals for the cells to prepare for uh, death or survival. So there's a whole set of uh, signaling pathways are activated which depending on the uh, intensity of the signal the outcome will be either uh, mitigating the process or committing to the cell death. Now and here that's the increased level of oxidants in the cell, damage to DNA by those oxidants, and here are some of these tumor necrosis factors, alpha and beta and fast ligand. These are the cell-generated molecules, which these molecules, they have receptor on the cell. So the question is, the cells are, they have built-in mechanism, okay, to respond to this kind of signals. When cells, they have the receptors to bind with the tumor necrosis factor alpha and tumor necrosis factor beta which induces cell death. So, so that means cells know from the beginning, okay, from day one that they are going to have to encounter this kind of molecules. So they already have the receptors on their cell surface. And this TNF alpha and TNF beta, they are not uh, death inducing agents only. They are required in this uh, for the normal cellular physiology but when their concentration is excess and they are secreted outside, then they can induce ectosis. Now, the cells, they don't only die by ectosis, as I told you, that accidental or mechanical injury or 
necrosis. Necrosis is another process by which it's a sudden death of a cell. And now how do we distinguish apoptosis from necrosis? And here, uh, these are the characteristic feature of these two processes. Here you can see cellular swelling here, as opposed to that, you have the condensation of the cell, and then here membranes are broken, and here it remains intact. It's like you can compare the two, two neighboring towns. One puts the trash into the plastic bags and put it in the trash can, and someone collects it, okay? And one neighborhood in which people just throw the trash on the street, okay? So everything grows bigger and bigger, and here energy is depleted. This process requires extensive amount of energy. So this is an active process, this is a passive process. And here cell lies because as you know that cell swells, okay, and when it reaches to the limit, then there is a burst of the cells and intracellular content is released in the neighborhood. And when those intracellular contents are released, you know what it can do because those substances are not all in the cell, they are in the compartments and they are protected so they don't cause damage. But here they are in the open so they will have an adverse effect on the neighboring cells and tissues. Now here <coughs> the cells are phagocytized and no tissue reaction. So this, in this process, in the apoptosis process, this, all of the cellular content is packed into the smaller vesicles. And those smaller vesicles are taken up by the phagocytes and thereby it is removed without even the neighboring cells knowing about it that something happened. And here DNA fragmentation, eventually the DNA is the master molecule which has to be turned off so and it is being chopped. But here you can say this, this is the DNA fragmentation is hallmark of apoptosis. There is a distinct difference in the way the DNA is chopped into small pieces. Here it is chopped into a random pieces, okay? <clears throat> and here it is chopped into a precise, in a precise fashion, in a very small uh, uh, pieces, which can be packed into those membrane vesicles. And then <clears throat> no individual cells appear to be involved, so only the cell which is undergoing death is, and the phagocytes, those are the two uh, cells are involved and it does not have any impact on the neighboring cells. Now, the Another way the cells can die is autophagy and as you know that any kind of starvation, nutrient starvation or any kind of starvation, of, uh, amino acid starvation, uh, uh, glucose starvation, in short energy depletion or depletion of uh, essential resources of the cells leads to a death of the cells and autophagy many times when you read in the literature it is a process of, it's not a death mechanism, but cells they try to survive under that condition by auto-digesting the intracellular content. Okay? So it's like if someone loses a job, okay? so what they do is they try to maintain their life by using the resources whatever they have. Okay? And slowly you might have to sell your cows, you might have to sell so and so and till you reach to a point where you have nothing else to sell and then that process is linked with the apoptosis and cells die. So in a similar way here when 
cells sense signal of the starvation nutrient starvation or any adverse stresses outside then the nucleation of the membrane occurs and then that cytosolic proteins and organelles are engulfed into those membranes which is called phagophore that fuses with the lysosomes and these are the small packs or the bags full of enzymes hydrolytic enzymes and that leads to the formation of autophagosome and autolysosome and that leads to either protection or death protection means it can sustain the viability of the cell for certain amount of time and if nutrients are not returned back then th that uh, those cells will die okay but if the cells are returned to the normal condition then that process is reversible and this is how uh, various proteins and you don't have to remember all these proteins the first slide that those are the major uh, principal steps which are required for the process to undergo but here are the uh, proteins involved and and why these are the, all the processes are called programmed cell death or highly regulated processes because there are so many proteins which are involved and this is the small piece of the membrane here and those membrane uh, fragments combines uh, binds with those ATG7 autophagy gene 7 and 10 gene product binds with this and that recruits the protein to bind and eventually leading to the formation of uh, autophagosome and then lysosome uh, fuses with autophagosome and that forms the autolysosome in which all of these ribosomes and other proteins they are uh, hydrolyzed by the proteolytic and hydrolytic enzymes and then regenerate amino acids okay and those amino acids are used by the cells to reproduce some of their organelles. <coughs> now here are the uh, examples like low energy and insulin and how the pathways are organized so mTOR pathway that is the major pathway which responds to the autophagy and you don't have to remember all of these components involved but the mTOR pathway the uh, mammalian target of rapamycin protein that is the sensor of nutrient status of the cells and that signals cells to activate autophagy mechanism and autophagy is turned on if nutrients are not returned back the cell that autophagy will link with the apoptosis and eventually cell will die now these are the classical features is like cl uh, classical textbook type thing here is the depiction of the apoptotic process and here you have the transmission electron microscopy and here is the scanning electron microscopy showing the uh, what i was talking about the small formation of small bags and then eventually leads to the phagocytosis and clearance of the phagos uh, dead cells now <clears throat> as i told you there are two pathways for apoptosis extrinsic pathway and intrinsic pathway extrinsic pathway is the threat from outside and intrinsic pathway is threat from inside so it's like the cell has to have two different mechanisms one is military okay that defends us from the external threat and homeland security which defends us from the internal threat so here is is the two typical mechanism where one mechanism senses the threat from outside okay and whatever is threat from outside is called extrinsic threat and that is taken care by the specific mechanism and if there is an internal disturbance or uh, problems then the another pathway takes care of that particular 
process. And here, <coughs> when you have death ligands like TNF alpha, TNF beta, and fast ligand that binds to the death receptor, that's where the signal is generated, and that leads to the activation of this membrane-bound complex, which leads to the activation of caspase A protein. And that caspase 8 protein can cleave uh, or activate caspase 3. Right now, don't worry about the cleavage. I would say I will use word activate. So this activates this and that leads to the programmed cell death. While in the intrinsic pathway, if there is a DNA damage and the P53 protein, that will have impact on the mitochondrial, mitochondria and cytochrome C release. That, is, that will activate initiator caspase 9 that eventually acts on caspase 3 and causes programmed cell death. So here you have initiator caspases and effector caspases. Those are the important things you have to remember. And then we'll talk about the crosstalk. And this is the same thing which is depicted in different ways. Trace, DNA damage, chemo, and UV radiation. They have direct effect on mitochondria, leads to cytochrome C release. And then through the caspase activation mechanism, it leads to the apoptosis. Here we have the death ligand binds to the receptor, activates caspase 8, and then it activates another caspase, leading to the cell death by activating caspase. Finally, caspase. There are uh, several ex executioner caspases. So we have initiator caspases, which initiate the pathway. And then there are executioner caspases. It's like in the jury indicts some person, okay, and that person is found guilty. Then the prosecution uh, separate part will live, will give them punishment of death penalty. So here, this death penalty is given by caspase three and caspase seven, and there are other caspases also. Now, uh, there are some major players and some minor players, but I. Although I have the title major players in apoptosis, I don't believe okay to be a major. It's a teamwork. Okay, so here we have caspases. It's like like a cysteine aspartate specific proteases. ASES is the typical for the enzymes. Whenever you refer to any enzyme, you use the word ASE protease. Okay. <clears throat> And these are the BCL2 family proteins. It's a B-cell proteins identified in the B-cell lymphoma. And therefore, therefore, they have typical structural features and therefore they are called BCL2 family proteins. And as we discuss about death signals like TNF and TNF receptors and P53 and some survival proteins. So when you have death proteins, then at the same time you have survival. So in biology, okay, there is always a mechanism which is in equilibrium. So when you have something which causes a death, then there must be something which prevents that also. Now, here, caspases can be grouped into initiator caspases and executioner caspases. And in literature, in the recent literature, you might find inflammatory caspases also. Some of the caspases play a role in inflammation and anti-aptosis also, but here typically a classical aptosis, okay, you, have, you can have caspases which are classified into initiator and executioner and two major players are caspase 8 and caspase 9 and here is caspase 3, 6 and 7, those are the 
executioner cache space and once this cache space is activated it is difficult to reverse the process okay it's like the commitment stage when cache, if, if you find cache space 3 6 and 7 activation in a tissue okay then there is it's called a point of no return but still we are trying to push the boundaries okay and trying to prevent those also <coughs> and think about it if it if the cell has massive activation of pro-caspases and overwhelming signal of the death, and if you prevent these caspases, we logically we think that we can prevent death, right? Hmm? If that, that's what we uh, normally with the linear thinking, okay, we should be able to prevent death. But what happens when threat is still there, okay, we can prevent this executioner, but eventually instead of programmed cell death it will lead to necrosis so if conditions are not written then inhibiting this executor caspase is not going to lead to any a therapeutic benefit okay but it might lead to some of the adverse consequences so it is important to <coughs> when whenever uh, remedies are designed for the treatment of diseases then the Activation of this cache space is must be considered before preventing the activation of any of the death signal. Now, as I told you, BCL2 family proteins, they again are classified into two groups. And some of the proteins are aprotic proteins, they induce cell death. And here are the group of proteins which prevent cell death. So they, they also have a different way of working. Okay? Although they have structural similarity, but there is a difference in the structure and that we'll get back to later on and there are some accessory proteins which help the process to go faster or it makes the process slower and that's the aprosis activating factor cytochrome c and inhibitor of aprosis proteins and gadd45 beta protein that is growth associated <coughs> protein and those proteins also play an accessory role so they either enhance the speed of the aptosis uh, or they uh, reduce the signaling or intensity of the aptosis. And here this is the classical example where when uh, cells were given TNF-alpha at different concentration and here the DNA fragmentation is measured and as you can see here with the increase in the TNF-alpha uh, concentration you see increase in the DNA fragmentation and here this is the classical example of the how DNA fragmentation is measured or uh, demonstrated in the laboratory by using the uh, <coughs> gel, acrylamide gel. But this is the old technique, it's not used anymore and here is ELISA technique which uses the uh, classical, uh, the fundamental principles of the fragmentation of DNA and uh, you probably know the nucleosome, this is called nucleosomal fragmentation and you know the uh, definition of nucleosome, right? 150 base coil, okay, wound on the protein called histone and there is an open part of the DNA and then another histone molecule comes in. So those are the parts where it's open structure where activated DNAs can cut uh, those portions and that leads to the generation of the fragments which are called 150 kilo base fragments. So but it's, the process is so random in chopping that eventually it leads to uh, a lettering pattern which 
gives you idea that yes, DNA is being degraded, okay, or chopped. Now here, this is the intrinsic pathway where, as I told you, mitochondria is a major player or is the target organism. And this is very interesting that why mitochondria is the target organism. Anyone? In any war strategy, okay, what a country would do? They try to destroy the power stations, right? So there is no communication, okay? There is no electricity, there is no power. So similarly here, when there is a threat, okay, what they try to destroy is the powerhouse of the cell. Mitochondria are powerhouses of the cells which generates energy, okay, for all of the functions of the cell. So here, uh, this mitochondria is kept intact by various proteins associated with mitochondrial membrane. And those proteins keep the membrane intact, so nothing comes out of mitochondria, nothing in a sense, the unnecessary things. The integral component of mitochondria, which are required for the normal functioning of mitochondria, stays in place. Okay? And when there is a threat, cells activate mechanism. Okay? Because if the threat is overwhelming, then cell must uh, cell decides that now there is no mitigative uh, strategy, so cell must induce activate the death pathway and it is activated by activating this kind of proteins. They bind with the mitochondrial membrane and creates a pore in the mitochondrial membrane so that cytochrome C-like molecules, very small molecules, can slip out of the mitochondria. And this is the signal that the powerhouse of the cell is damaged and that signal is sensed by the other proteins like APF which leads to the activation of caspase 9 and that signals cells to die. So and there are uh, proteins, I told you that BCL2 like anti-aprotic proteins, normally anti-aprotic protein BCL2 blocks the release of cytochrome C and the protein like BACs, the same family protein Proaprotic protein, they increase the permeability of membrane and that leads to cytochrome C release. So the count balance between BCL2 and BACs is very important. In normal condition, BACs and BCL2 interaction is in, in equilibrium which keeps the mit mitochondrial integrity intact. Okay? And if in the abnormal condition, the balance is, dis is altered, that leads to the activation of cascade or aprotic pathways. And as I told you, there are extrinsic mechanism and intrinsic mechanism. So you, you, you all remember that if there is no communication between homeland security and military, some, sometimes some th things go wrong, right? So there has to be crosstalk. Crosstalk in a sense, communication between these two pathways. So both nodes, both pathways can coordinate their efforts sometime to enhance or intensify the process or sometime to control the process. And that's why the crosstalk is necessary. And here, as I told you, the TNF alpha can activate procaspase 8, can activate procaspase 3, but at the same time, caspase 8 has an ability to cleave 
a protein called BID, which is a proaptotic BCL2 family member, and that leads to the T-bead that's called truncated or cleaved pro uh, fragment. And this T-bead can enter into mitochondria and that leads to the cytochrome C release. The another protein is the BAD, which also has uh, impact on cytochrome C release. And therefore, this is the point where these two pathways, like mitochondrial pathway, that is called intrinsic pathway, and caspase 8 uh, mem uh, receptor mediated pathway, both can cross react here and can intensify. If the process goes this way, the process is going to be slower. Okay? But if it also activates another mechanism and it comes here, and from here it uh, can activate caspase 3, then it intensifies the process. So, in order to enhance the death, okay, then these two mechanisms are activated simultaneously by the crosstalk. Now, here we talk about the caspases. So, what are these proteins? These are these small proteins. And they are always, these, are, these proteins are present in the cell. They are always present in the cell. They are constitutively present in the cell. So, they are called procaspases. And what does that mean, procaspases? Pardon? So it, it needs a signal for activation, okay? because they have a domain in the structure which needs to be cleaved, chopped off in order to make that protein active. And that's what is here, the pro-domain, and it has a large domain and small domain. So when this pro-domain is cleaved here, okay, that pro-domain is removed and then the, the another cleavage takes place at this place. and the one large and one small subunit is formed from one molecule of caspase, which is when completely processed. And here, the two small molecules and two large forms a complex, okay, that's heterotetrameric complex, and that's the complex which is called an active caspase. So, if you do not have this components in proportion, you might not have a complete activation of caspase, okay. So, here, and here you can see the prodomain. Now, this prodomain is not same in all caspases, and that's why they differ in their activity. And that's why some of the caspases are called as initiator caspases, which responds to the intracellular signals, and some of the caspases are called as executioner caspases. So they respond to a different signal for inducing the activity. So here there's a uh, sort car domain and car stands for caspase activation and recruitment domain. So activation and recruitment. So that those are the two very important words. So here for, that means for activation it requires the recruitment of some proteins over here in order to activate this particular protein. So this pro, uh, caspase is they have prodomain and there is a reason not just to keep them in check but to sense the signal when to be activated and when not to be activated. <coughs> and these are the different examples of the caspases from different organisms and you can see that how this particular part of the caspase is conserved in almost all of these caspases and this is the really active uh, part which gets cleaved into two large and small domain 
that leads to the activity, uh, active form of the protein. Now, here is some of the how you will. This is all you see on the PowerPoint slide, right? But so, someone has to see it in the laboratory when you go for research. Okay, you have. This is not something can someone can dream. Okay, like the calculate dream the benzene structure as the snakes having tail and mouth. Okay, so here you have, you have to demo, uh, be able to demonstrate in the laboratory. And here we uh, we took some uh, intestinal epithelial cells. They were grown in control. You don't have to worry about these two three conditions because here is the condition is a normal condition. Here we use a drug which inhibits cell death and here we use a compound which reverses the effect of that particular drug. So here you can see this is the uh, when we gave TNF alpha to this particular cell and you saw in the first slide 10 nanogram was uh, there was a dose dependent effect and we chose to use 10 nanogram and here this is the pro form pro caspase okay and this is the form <coughs> which is the with the pro domain and when it is cleaved it sips over here now when we give TNF alpha you can see this disappears and you have uh, increase in the active form now here this particular drug blocks the TNF alpha induced activation of caspase 3 and when we put the reversal uh, on the component which prevents the effect of this particular drug you see the same condition as control so here this is a classical example how you check the activation of caspase 3 so this is using western blot but there are easy ways by flow cytometry and by <coughs> using enzyme uh, enzymatic colorimetric and fluorometric enzymatic assays which can be used to determine the activities of different caspases uh, using different substrates now as i told you that caspases can be activated okay here this uh, pro caspase 3 activation is simple mechanism two cuts and four fragments too large too small and that leads to the activation of caspase 3 while for pro-caspase pro 8, the mechanism is a little bit complex because it is receptor-mediated pathway. So first pro-caspase gets recruited to the uh, death domain on the membrane and then the various molecules of this called induced proximity. So induced proximity means when they come together, too many molecules of caspase 8 are recruited at same place, then they start activating each other and that's how caspase uh, Eight, pro caspase 8 gets activated and here is uh, caspase 9 you can see here this is when you go from one to another mechanism the mechanism becomes more and more diverse and complex so when a mechanism is complex then it cannot be deregulated so easily so it's more complexity is a more tighter regulation and here like uh, in Caspase 9, the oligomerization is required. So these are the APAF, cytochrome C, and cas uh, active caspase and pro-caspase 9. So here it starts with the uh, uh, cytochrome C binding with the ATP, and ATP recruits APAF, then APAF recruits pro-caspase 9, and then it leads to the activation. And it, this is called as a wheel of death. Once this wheel of death is formed, okay, is and this is now, as I told you that at certain point, this processes are reversible. So if you have an intervening strategy before 
this really forms a, for example, at, at this point, okay, you can still reverse the process. But once this is formed, then it is not possible to reverse the process because it is going to activate caspase 3 and eventually the cells commit to death. Now, BCL2, as I told you, BCL2 family proteins, like normally BCL2 proteins, they form homodimer okay, in cells when they are in the equilibrium. Now, in the conditions where cells receive a signal which are abnormal for cellular environment, then BCL can form, uh, BCL backs forms the hetero, uh, heterodimer and that's the mechanism by which this is, this is the proeptotic protein, this is anti-eptotic protein. So, like those caspases are kept in check by the card domain, okay, because they are not constantly active. Here, this proeptotic proteins are kept in check or under control by the anti-eptotic protein because they are bound with this protein and they are not available free to form the heterodimer with another Bax molecule and therefore they cannot translocate to the mitochondrial membrane, they cannot cause any damage. But any signal from outside, their signal which has effect on decreasing the level of BCL2 or inactivating BCL2, what will happen? It will release Bax. Now when, once Bax is released, it can find another Bax, partner with that and then carry out the attack on mitochondria, the powerhouse of cell. Now as I told you that those proteins are classified as pro and antiaprotic proteins and here are antiaprotic proteins and you can see here they have BH1, BH2, BH3 and BH4 domains. These domains, see BH4 is present in all of these antiaprotic proteins okay? and in the proaprotic protein one of the domain is missing okay? and here if you notice one thing there is a transmembrane domain here now what is the significance of transmembrane domain so external signals pardon it can receive external signals it's like a zip code all the proteins in the cells proteins are made on uh, in the cytoplasm on the ribosomes right how do protein know where to go the proteins are synthesized in cytoplasmic milieu and then they are sorted out, they reach to the destination. Some proteins go to the membrane, some proteins go to the nuclear membrane, some proteins go to the mitochondrial membrane. How do proteins know? They have the zip code, like our zip code, which sorts the mail and send it to the proper place. So this transmembrane domain, okay, those are nothing but the zip code for the protein to reach where it is supposed to. And th this suggests that they need to be incorporated into the membrane and that's where they are functional. So, these proteins, they have this transmembrane domain and they have all the four domains intact and therefore they are antiaprotic and these proteins lack some of this domain and therefore they behave in a different manner and this process probably okay, came into existence due to the evolution and this is the simplified version of that the uh, total uh, bags bag and box those are the uh, 
proteic proteins and they have this domain structure which is similar but the reason for showing this is here you can see this PO4 that is the phosphorylation. Some of these proteins they have the amino acid residues which can undergo phosphorylation. Now what does the phosphorylation means? The, those residues when they are phosphorylated what happens to the protein when it gets phosphorylated? Because you, you must have heard so many times phosphorylation, dephosphorylation. Why bother about phosphorylation and dephosphorylation? What does it do to the protein? Activate it. Hmm? What do you mean by activate it? Because this is, we, we pick the words, right? Protein is activated. What do we mean by activated? It's undergone a conformational change mm -hmm. that makes its active site capable of binding to whatever its target okay. is. That's right. So a protein is in particular, uh, is, is folded in particular fashion, right? So it doesn't have the binding site for other partners to join. Okay, if someone ties your hand on the back, okay, can you shake hand with someone? Can you hold hand? No. So, but if someone cuts the tie, okay, and that's the phosphorylation. Sometimes phosphorylation opens the structure and that protein can interact with uh, other proteins, which may be beneficial or may be detrimental. So phosphorylation can, phosphorylation does not always activate protein. It changes the activity of protein. When we say activate means we always go towards the positive connotation of the meaning, right? But it's not always that. Like BCL2 protein, when it is phosphorylated in, by a particular residue, it gets activated. If it is phosphorylated on one of the serine residue, it gets inactivated. So depending on the outcome, upon phosphorylation, that way we can call it is activated or inactivated or it has a positive effect or negative effect. And here, the, this particular protein bad, it's really bad protein and that has two serine 112 and serine 124 residues which can be phosphorylated, one by the MAP kinase or quantor 2 and one by the AKT, PI3 kinase, okay. And that leads to the inactivation of this protein. Now, this protein cannot translocate to mitochondria and can cause no harm. So, some of the, and those are the signals which we call as pro-survival signaling, which inactivates this kind of proteins and prevent the induction of cell death or prevent the mitochondrial damage. And here is some of the some of the pathways, how they interact and like this is TNF receptor, TNF ligand binds and then receptor undergoes tetramer formation that leads to the recruitment of Procaspase 8. This is like, if you imagine the ligand, why ligand bind, binding activates the receptor? Could you repeat the question? Mm -hmm. Why the binding of ligand on the cell surface? activates receptor okay and we say that caspase 8 is activated why the something which binds on the outside has an effect on inside that's my question well the receptor will undergo a conformational change there will be an intracellular protein that will uh, have its shape changed by the change of the receptor okay and this will induce a cascade so for example you have we have these fingers right and if these fingers are cannot come together we cannot hold anything so if something binds on the outside surface, which brings these fingers together like robotics, robotics, 
and now cache space 8 is here but if my fingers are like this cache space 8 comes here but cannot be hold so when something binds over here and cache space 8 is here this can hold cache space 8 for allowing it for the activation so when ligand binds outside the cell surface it causes the oligomerization of the receptors multiple receptors come together and like fang they form the finger like structure where the molecules inside the cells they recognize those uh, spots and they come together dock there and the docking site is created in scientific term we can call it as a, it creates a docking site for the intracellular proteins and that leads to the uh, signaling uh, activation of signaling cascade and that's what is shown here and now pdgf that causes the akt activation and as i told you that it phosphorylates bad okay and bad when it's phosphorylated it has another protein 14-3-3 which always keeps bad in check and i always told you that bad guys are always kept in check by the good guys okay they're always tackled it's like football metaphor it's all they are always tackled by those are the proteins and now depending on the phosphorylation state those proteins can be released or can be hold <coughs> tight together and thereby the cells create balance now how the bcl2 protein functions in the cells and i told you almost all of those things when bcl uh, bcl2 protein regulates the membrane permeability of mitochondria which is very very important for the normal functioning of cells and you might have heard about a lot of diseases related to mitochondria where mitochondria size uh, shrinks or swells that leads to the many of the neuronal disease and uh, uh, neurodegenerative diseases and then it uh, bcl2 protein binds and inactivates apoptosis activating factor it causes the inhibition of reactive oxygen species and you know that most of the reactive oxygen is generated where mitochondria right where there is a churning of the molecule electron takes place and that happens in the inner membrane of mitochondria where you have the electric ets electron transport chain where electron jumps okay and eventually leads to the formation of h2o and co2 now here like uh, calcium homeostasis then RAF interaction, VDAC, ion channel and ATP ADP ratio these are all of the functions are related to mitochondria and BCL2 family proteins are intimately involved in the regulation of the permeability of membrane and that's why it's called MOMP or PTP and when there's a change alteration in PTP okay, that leads to the cytochrome C release and that leads to the activation of aprotic pathways now, as I told you that there are uh, some sig outside signal or inside signal which has uh, impact on how the aptotic, what happened? Now, one of the uh, example is one of the MAP kinase family, like uh, as I told you that ARC1, ARC2 activates, activates uh, uh, phosphorylation of BAD and that leads to the inactivation of BAD. So similarly, there is another pathway called June kinase pathway and all of you must have heard about June kinase pathway, right? It's a, okay. So this is a stress, they are classically called as SAPK, stress activated protein kinases. And that uh, June kinase is one of the prominent member of 
that particular group and the name itself tells you everything. When there is a stress to the cell, those proteins are activated and that's why they are called as stress-activated protein kinases. And some of the members are June kinase, P38, and uh, NF-kappa B pathway, those are activated in, as a, in a response to the stress. Okay? And here, uh, I'm trying to show you some results from our laboratory where we try to dissect the pathway how June kinase is involved in a protein process. So whether it's pro-aprotic or anti-aprotic. And you will have to <coughs> tell me at the end of two or three slides whether in this system, June kinase is pro-aprotic or anti-aprotic, okay? Now here, when, when we gave TNF-alpha and cyclohexamide to the cells, you see there is a activation of phosphoryl, activation of June kinase is measured by its phosphorylation on this threonine residue, and here are the two bands, uh, junk P54 and P46, junk 1 and junk 2, two isoforms of this particular protein gets activated upon TNF-alpha signal, right? So from here, as you remember previous slide, when we gave June kinase of uh, this uh, TNF-alpha, it caused activation of caspase 3, right? In the previous slide, where I showed the, how caspases are activated. So instantly you can say, yes, June kinase is pro-aprotic, right? But this is the terminal's signal. Now here, we use SP600125, that is an inhibitor of June kinase. So this, this particular compound will prevent activation of June kinase. And as you see here, the TNF-induced June kinase is, activity is prevented by this particular inhibitor. Now if we go back and from the same trial extract, if we check the activity of caspases or cytochrome C, then we will be able to know whether this is leading to the increase in the aprotic process or uh, amplify this pathway or it inhibits the aprotic pathway. And that's what here you can see, the cyto uh, we prepared cytoplasmic fractions of the cell and when we, in the TNF-alpha treated cells, you can see there's a lot of cytochrome C hanging around in the cytoplasmic fraction rather than mitochondrial fraction and when we used this particular inhibitor, SP600125 to prevent June kinase activation, you see the release of cytochrome C is prevented. So here we can say that activation of June kinase upon TNF-alpha induction leads to the release of cytochrome C, so it will cause and here this is uh, another way of checking that and that's the here we use a dye which binds with the cytochrome C and then it changes the fluorescence of the uh, complex and when you have green color that means that that particular dye is in the cytoplasm uh, bound with the cytochrome C and here when we use this uh, <coughs> particular uh, SP inhibitor you see overall decrease in the uh, uh, cytochrome C in the cytoplasm and as you remember in DFMO, caspase 3 was not activated. So in DFMO you can see that uh, the intensity of green is very very low throughout the condition even if TNF-alpha is present or absent. So that means cytochrome C which is present in cyt uh, cytoplasm over here and that led to the caspase 3 activation. So this is linked to the aprosis. So activation of June kinase in response to TNF-alpha 
leads to the cytochrome C release which causes activation of caspase 9 and that will activate caspase 3. So now we have to put the story together. So here this is the uh, pro-caspase 9 and here is the active caspase 9 and here you can see in response to TNF-alpha caspase 9 is activated significantly. Caspase 3 is also activated but when you give this inhibitor with, along with the TNF-alpha uh, this caspase 9 activity is abolished and therefore caspase 3 is not activated and that led to the conclusion that June kinase in this particular system okay, when it is activated in response to the death receptor ligand leads to the release of cytochrome C that leads to the release of uh, activation of caspase 9 which causes activation of caspase 3 and eventually cell death. Now, here is one example where I told you about the BCL2 family proteins and uh, P53, that's, uh, you already know about P53 in the cell cycle lecture, right? You have studied cell cycle regulation. <coughs> so, here is, this is the day zero, these are the uh, animals which are labeled with the GFP fluorescence, wherever there is a tumor, you can uh, monitor the tumor burden by uh, checking the fluorescence. And here these are the control cells and these are the P53 null cells so they don't have P53 uh, protein, uh, they don't express active P53 protein and here are the control BCL2 cells. So the, these cells overexpress BCL2. These cells are designed to express BCL2 in a higher quantity and if you see here the, at, day zero, they have almost identical tumor burden. That's how they call it, num they count number of tumor, okay, or the intensity and say, and here if you count number, that may be vary, but the intensity of one tumor may be different from another. So basically we can say that they have same uh, tumor uh, burden and then they were treated with the chemotherapeutic drug cyclophosphamide. And you know what cyclophosphamide is? It's a red poison. Okay. That's what is classically used as chemotherapeutic agent in the treatment of tumors. Now here in a normal uh, control cells, over the time the tumor burden decreases. At day 13 and 17 almost tumor burden is zero and here we have P53 null cells you can still see. So if the cells, if the organism lacks P53, then it has an impact on chemotherapy. So chemotherapy may not be as effective as the normal cells or cells having a normal P53. Now here if you see when cells overexpress BCL2, what does BCL2 do? It prevents cell death. And what cyclophosphamide do? It increases cell death. So here you have two opposing factors and this is the clear cut evidence that BCL2 okay, is the status of BCL2 in cancer cell and status of P53 in the cancer cell is very, very important to design that effective treatment strategy. You cannot take any drug, okay? If you take a drug which has a direct effect on P53, it inactivates P53 or activates P53, then that may not work. So here, this is an example how the uh, treatment strategies and modalities are developed based on the status of the cells. So now, nowadays you must be hearing about a lot of genotyping, okay? The individualized medicine. So 
They, those are the treatments tailored for a particular patient. So because some of the proteins are uh, genes are mutated, and as you know, this uh, single nucleotide polymorphism. So those are the differences. With by and large, when we say that monkeys the DNA is 99.7 percent identical to us, okay, then uh, anything which works in the monkey should work in us. Okay? But there are some differences in the uh, protein, uh, not only protein, on the gene uh, sequence, which are called as small nu uh, nuclear polymorphism. Okay? One or two nucleotide difference, which may not change the structure of protein, but it changes the way genes are expressed. And therefore, those differences need to be take taken into account before any strategy is designed. Now, I think P53, instead of I telling you more about P53, I want you to tell me about what you have learned about P53 so far. And here is the P53, uh, whether it's a savior or slayer. What do you think? In, in context of the cell cycle, because you have studied the role of P53 in cell cycle, right? And if you are not gone into the details, don't worry about it, okay? So this is a protein which is very important and the reason it is important is it's not only... Initially people thought that this is the protein and they thought that this, they found the cure for everything, okay? When they found this protein. And the reason I'm trying to emphasize the, this particular protein is because depending on the circumstances, this protein okay, has an effect which can lead to the totally opposite outcomes, depending on the structure and activity and where that protein is in the cell and uh, how it works. All of those put together leads to the outcome of the eventuality what will happen to the cell. And so, uh, so far, many of the cancers detected today, okay, they found mutation in this particular gene. So every, everybody thought that, okay, this is the target. So if we hit this target, we can cure cancer. Okay? But it turned out that even today, we don't have cure. Okay? We have the methods to prevent it or we have the way to mitigate it, okay? but we don't have cure for the cancer because it's not a one target process. It's the process or it's the outcome of a process by multiple targets. Now this protein was called, identified as oncogenes and you pretty much know Oncogenes means any gene which is related to, it was originally called as cancer genes, oncogenes, right? They classically, they are called cancer genes. Then if they are cancer genes, then why they are present in our body? Why, well, why are they in our body? The bad genes, na natural selection should eliminate those bad genes, right? Because we are going towards the refining process. So, are they, they were identified as a notorious, okay? but that doesn't mean they are always notorious. Okay? So P53 later on they found that this is, P53 is very very important protein in regulating the cells 
proliferates and control okay and dna damage surveillance process so it's like a drone okay p53 protein is uh, hovering oh, in the cell as a drone to sense the damage to the dna whenever damage is done okay that protein gets activated and it the uh, decision is made how to prevent the damage how to repair the damage okay and let cells to undergo cell cycle <coughs> so here is like it was identified uh, as one of the oncogene and it was found that in most of the tumor cells or in the cancer cells this gene is mutated and therefore it is probably the target but later on it it was found to play a ma uh, major role in the cell cycle and this is a protein which is a transcriptional regulator also so and this p53 protein depending on the circumstances normally p53 protein if you mutate p53 protein or if you if you inhibit cell cycle okay by using chemotherapeutic drug so whenever chemotherapeutic drugs are given and most of those uh, drugs they act in by a very simple mechanism they halt the cell cycle and that's exactly what happens when if if you're driving a car okay and if you hear the weird noise in your car or in, in tire what you do you stop you put a brake okay so you need a brake so and then you find out if you go out, go out check everything is all right then you start driving again so in the same way when something is not in order in the cell then cell does not continue with the cell cycle progression because that's in the advantage of the cells that uh, if there is a damage to the dna then if the cells multiply the dna damage is going to be passed on to the next generation or next cell and that's not healthy for the cells so at that point when the damage is sensed the cells put a break on the cell cycle and that's what we call g1 cell cycle arrest and that's where p53 is very important if there is no p53 there is no cell cycle arrest so the cells with the damage continue okay proliferating and they multiply so what we are seeing is the accumulation of damaged cells which we call cancer or tumor and p53 is uh, induces apoptosis through transcriptional activation of proaptotic genes and therefore people used to say p53 is uh, here when you say proaptotic genes means what it induces apoptosis right so if you increase p53 you should have a more death and when you decrease p53 you should have less death because these molecules are not made and that's what we saw in that animal experiment and here it can it's not only that it just does the transcriptional activator activation but it can directly bind with some of the bcl2 family proteins and maintains the ratio of those proteins in one particular direction so it is very important in maintaining the equilibrium of those pro and antiaprotic proteins in the cells and p53 is known to play a very important role in apoptosis and you can find different references but at the same time you can find the opposite references also and here uh, how it is physiologically relevant in terms of apoptosis and that uh, p53 can suppress oncogene induced transformation of the cells and then it inhibits the growth and 
progression into cell cycle and it removes the uh, severely damaged DNA, cells containing severely damaged DNA and it is very, very important marker for the chemotherapy response uh, for the tumor treatment. And here, these are the different pathways by which the oncogenes is, uh, oncogenes is a gen general term which any gene which deregulates the proliferation of the cell, they are called oncogenes. So normally every cell has a precise genetically controlled mechanism to undergo proliferation. And if that doesn't happen, that our liver or any organ can keep growing bigger and bigger, which won't, be, won't fit in our body. So every cell has a built-in mechanism okay, for proliferation. So at certain time and point, it stops proliferating. And that's why I told you that there are organs in the body where uh, normal uh, proliferation or renewal of the cells is continuously taking place, like small intestine and then uterus and in the brain. But all other organs like liver, it doesn't grow bigger and bigger every, every day. And there, the uh, cell cycle control is essential to maintain this uh, size of the tissue or the organ. And here, P53, as I told you, this transcriptional role, it binds with the uh, <coughs> particular part of the DNA, which calls the uh, transcriptional, where does the transcriptional activator bind on the gene? Right? So they have specific DNA binding domain on this particular protein and that DNA binding domain will identify the target. So when we say DNA binding domain, then this it should bind with any DNA, right? Again, here it comes the structure, okay? The 3D, 3D structure of the protein, which this particular P53 can bind to P53 can bind to 100 different uh, DNA, okay, and it regulates 100 different genes. So, in at particular time, how it decides that it has to bind to a cell cycle because it regulates cell cycle because P53 can transcriptionally activate P21, which is the cell cycle CDK2 inhibitor, which inhibits the activity of cyclin-dependent kinase 2, which is required for movement of cells from G1 to S phase, right, and if P53 is bound on that, it can do the cell cycle arrest. If it is bound to the Puma, Noxa, or any of the proaptotic genes, it can cause the activation or uh, activation of those particular proteins. So here is P21, MBN2, BAX, GAT. These are the proteins involved in cell cycle regulation and apoptosis, and this, that's the target of P53. So either the change in the P53's activity can lead to the cell cycle arrest or apoptosis, two different outcomes. And other than that, as I told you, the uh, Bax protein, which is and BCL XL protein, those are the very very important part of the uh, maintaining mitochondrial integrity. And P53 is now shown to bind with those proteins and changes the activity of those proteins, and thereby it alters the regulation or the mitochondrial membrane <coughs> permeability. Now, here, this is a classical textbook example, but you won't find this kind of classical things in the literature because literature has all different way, and this is just the cumulative outcome of 
P53 story and the interaction with uh, BCL and BACS, okay, overall in general. So, uh, if you find some paper where this thing is not taking place, okay, don't try to shoot me email that you know I was telling you something wrong. Okay. Now here BCL, XL, and BACS, as I told you that they are always mount uh, and uh, this uh, BCL, XL titrates BACS, so it keeps BACS in check. Now here is uh, when it, P53 comes into play as a protein, not as a transcription factor, it can bind with the BCL XL and now what happens is BAX is released and BAX can form the trimer, okay, and this trimer uh, of the BAX can bind with the mitochondrial membrane and causes the release of cytochrome C. So uh, only thing you have to remember is whether what is the nature of this protein? Okay, this is proeptotic. When proeptotic protein oligomerizes, leads to the apoptosis. When it is bound with the BCL, XL, BCL2, antiaptotic protein, they are kept in check. Okay. Now, this is. I don't think this needs any explanation. P53 is used. <coughs> For any, to kill cancer cells, but again, this is not like simple one-stop shopping. Okay, when you kill target, you kill cancer, because as you know, it goes both ways. So you you cannot eliminate completely P53. Okay, depend uh, and eliminate the cancer because. P53, as you know, as a transcriptional factor, it regulates the genes of diverse uh, functions. So, if one protein has multiple functions in the cell, then by knocking out that particular protein, what you are essentially doing is you are knocking out multiple functions. So, trying to solve one problem, you are probably creating 10 other new problems. So, uh, in some of the cancer cells, the P53 gene is mutated and it is inactivated. So there are some agents which they found some chemicals which can bind with that protein and refold that protein in a normal structure. So those are the, the strategies which are used to mitigate the uh, treatment strategy. So now if you have a mutation in P53 and that particular uh, P53 mutant cancer cell line is not response, responding to particular uh, cyclophosphamide as we saw in the P53 null cells. So now what you can do is some of the agents which can reverse the structure of P53 protein back to the normal if you treat the cells with those chemicals and then you give the chemotherapeutic agent then now you have the normal P53 protein and that will act as a control and uh, cells will undergo normal cell death. That means they will respond to that particular chemotherapy. And those small mole uh, small molecule uh, inhibitor of this target of cancer, they are right now all of these small biotech companies. They are churning out uh, hundreds and thousands of molecules probably every year, which are targeted uh, molecules which can bind with particular protein and alters the activity. I don't use the word activate. Okay, alters the activity of those particular proteins <coughs> and. Viruses are also used to transduce the particular genes and you probably know the uh, transfections is 
transfection methods using viruses and chemical uh, agents or the lipids are used to uh, deliver genes okay, into the cells and right now the latest technology is the CRISPR-9. Have you heard about that? Okay, so that's the latest on market that now you don't have to change the structure of protein. You can go back and change the genes in the cell. Okay, so right now it is working at cellular level and some of the small animal models, but eventually the goal is to go back and change the genes. But those strategies are good for some of the uh, disorders which are linked with the uh, genome, uh, genotypic defects, not with the cell. In, uh, if you have 10 different uh, organs in the body are affected, it's hard, but the, the mutation in the gene which are inherited, those, are, those can be fixed and say for example like autism and some other diseases, it, it can be very useful. And as I told you that there are some uh, proteins which are called anti-aprotic proteins called IAPs and those IAPs are the direct target of the caspases and IAPs bind with the caspase 3, 3 and prevents the activation of caspase. So either you can use the inhibitors of caspase activ uh, activation or inhibit the activity of caspases or you can overexpress this protein which binds with pro-caspases and does not allow the activation of those caspases. So there are various proteins called, uh, belong to IAP family which prevents the activity of caspase and those can be used as therapeutic agents. So here I'm going to uh, stop here today okay? because as the dose response, even the dose, if you keep increasing the dose of anything okay, at certain time and point, it stops working. Okay? So I think uh, there's something about 10 minutes left. So on Thursday, we have this paper discussion, right? So I'll uh, go through this for 10 minutes and then we'll start that uh, review of that paper. And everybody has that paper, right? And the title is N-terminal BH4 domain of BCL2 is functional for heterodimerization with BACs and inhibition of aptosis. Okay. So that will give you some idea that whatever we see here on slides, how it is done in the laboratory, okay, and this is, uh, it will give you some idea about the methodology, how it can be done in the lab.
Uh, 